0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jaggeret and Turrible land. Today, a decrease in deaths from cardiovascular disease for people with diabetes is revealing new trends... And Norman, it's the voice referendum this Saturday, and there is a really important health aspect to this.
1: Yes, there is. It turns out there's a strong evidence base for the voice, at least when it comes to health. And a few weeks ago, I recorded a conversation on just that with leading child health researcher and past Australian of the Year, Professor Fiona Stanley, and Donna Archie, who's Chief Executive of Congress. That's a long-standing and very large community controlled Aboriginal health service in Central Australia. It got a big response from you, the audience. So in this week of the referendum, we've decided to replay it in a slightly edited form. Well, welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us. I'm on Gadigal land. Donna, where are you speaking from?
2: I'm on beautiful central Arunderland land in
3: Alice
1: Springs. And Fiona?
3: I'm on, actually on Wurundjeri country. I just like to acknowledge that I'm often on Noongar Butcher right. uh, in Western Australia.
1: Donna, when we were chatting about this conversation we're going to have today, the first thing you said to me is you're sick of being consulted. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, I think we've got a really good example in the Northern Territory whereby it's not good enough now to be constantly consulted and spoken to, but our voice is not heard. The need for the voice is really about establishing genuine, substantive, and continued representation of the First Peoples in the policy making process. And we know, too, from our own experience, that if you give us a voice, we will make a positive change.
1: So you're implying that consultation has been a ticker box process rather than being listened to? Is that what you're saying?
2: Exactly. Too much consultation, too much talking. Aboriginal people have been saying for a long time what they need. What we need is a national structure that is enshrined in the constitution so that it can be protected from becoming a plaything of party politics and being able to be dismissed at the whim of government.
1: Now, you are, before I come to Fiona, you argue that the Northern Territory at the moment, in fact, is a case study that shows a voice-like mechanism can be successful and show results.
2: Yes, there was a key turning point in the 1990s with the establishment of a strong Aboriginal leadership body in the Northern Territory. And we'd long advocated for a forum that would give us a voice, not just at the local community level through our Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Services, but also at the table where big decisions on health were made. And we finally won this argument and the Northern Territory Aboriginal Health Forum was established in 1998 and it's a place where the aboriginal health sector and governments meet together and plan how to improve the health of our communities it really laid the groundwork for many of our health improvements in the northern territory that we've seen since it's not perfect we don't always agree norman but it does demonstrate what we had always said When you have structures that are based on genuine Aboriginal involvement and leadership, you get better outcomes.
1: And what improvements have you seen are measurable?
2: Well, we've seen in the Northern Territory life expectancy for Aboriginal men improved by nine years from 1999 to 2018. And for our women, the figure was just under five years. Now, if I can just take you back, Norman... To when the Central Australian Aboriginal Congress started, which was, we're turning 50 this year.
1: Congratulations. And
2: yes, big, big milestone for us. And at the time, infant mortality, so that's the death of babies in the first year of life, was 200 deaths per live birth. It's now
1: at 15. Per thousand live births. Yes. So those are amazing statistics. Fiona, Stanley, let's just get to the data which really impel this process. some years now, but you did, or the Telephone Institute in Western Australia, which you ran, did a groundbreaking study, which was the West Australian Aboriginal Child Health Survey, which really came up with incredibly disturbing findings. Just want to remind us what that came up with.
3: Sure, I'd love to. Thank you. Well, we interviewed 5,300 Aboriginal children from every community in Western Australia, urban, rural, remote. Um, And it should be said these were Aboriginal
1: researchers doing this research.
3: Oh, yes, yes, of course. It was actually headed up by people like Ted Wilkes and and Ken Wyatt before he went into politics. The thing that was most anguishing was that between 40 and 60% of all ATSIC regions in Western Australia had were forcibly removed from family. That was the history they gave. And when you look at that impact, you could see that not only in that generation that where the children were removed and we had such terrible outcomes, but their children and their children So we got three, almost to four generational effects. And the effects were things like a doubling of mental health problems, two and a half times things like infant mortality rate, and even gambling and substance abuse was incredibly much higher in the group that reported removal. So when people say, oh, they should just get over it, Um, You know, it's a different thing. The trauma, the intergenerational trauma has been documented by this study. When we took the results to Canberra, they refused to accept the data. We had to go back and reanalyse the whole lot um, and then show them that, in fact, it was a true level, both of removals, forced removals. It was truly a a stolen generations and the impact going down through generations.
1: You've had a career-long commitment to improving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. And you've got a real beef about government policy, which is something that Donna was referring to, which is one of the arguments for the voice being enshrined in the Constitution is that it doesn't allow governments to change the very core concept, which is that you need a voice. And you've seen examples where government policy has really worked against Aboriginal health when things looked as if they were going well to begin with.
3: There's a huge number of examples, but I'm going to give you two different kinds of examples. There are two reasons why government policy has not closed the gap. And the first big reason is that they have funded, without consultation, no consultation, but, you know, with inappropriate consultation, they have funded programmes which are not only... Useless, but harmful. And they cost a lot of money. The best example, Norman, is the Northern Territory intervention introduced, again, by John Howard in 2007. It was a hugely expensive punitive intervention. It was addressing the little children, a sacred report, which, of course, is about child sexual abuse in the Northern Territory. They said in the army, they took away the uh, self-esteem and the power of Aboriginal people to look after their families. In many of the communities, it was an absolute disaster. And for every year... Following that intervention, and it was continued by Labor, child sexual abuse went up every year. Now, where's the evaluation of that government program, which cost so much money and was so very, very harmful? And the second example is equally bad. Donna's made the point about Aboriginal control being so very effective in terms of trust of services and effectiveness of services. And I've got Example after example after example of that all through the 50 years of research I've been doing in this area. But one of the most anguishing examples, again, is where the government does not fund or defunds the very Aboriginal control programs which are working so beautifully and the most horrible example of that, the anguishing one for me, is that there were 75 Aboriginal community controlled family and child centres across Australia. Seventy-five of them. You know, things like Bibb Willem in Victoria, June Oscars program in the Fitzroy Valley. They were run by Aboriginal people. They were much more than childcare. They had culture, language, domestic violence, nutrition, health. They were centres of cultural strength. And because they knew what they had to do for their kids, they were incredibly successful, including kids being more ready for school. Year 12 rates went up in Victoria, dramatically associated with these programs. And in 2015, thereabouts, Scullion, Birmingham, Turnbull and Abbott decided that they would defund these programs. So now, when you look at all of the communities and Dutton goes to Alice Springs and says, oh, there's all this child sexual abuse, there's all this horrible behaviour, well, that's because these early childhood influences were completely wiped. Now, we know the evidence for early childhood. You know it as well. The population who are listening to this program will know about the amazing evidence of early childhood services, but they were actually breaking the intergenerational trauma. Those two examples are the main reasons, in my opinion, why governments, successive governments, have not closed the gap, because they do not understand the context in which aboriginal people are living and working and playing and having culture and doing all that stuff
1: so donna a recent example of what some would argue is a failure of policy is on alcohol controls in alice springs where as far as i understand it congress and community-controlled organizations warned the northern territory government not to lift those controls. And yet they did. And you've described that there are processes that work quite well in the Northern Territory. But despite that, they got into real problems and having to reinstitute them in Alice Springs. The critics are saying, well, what's the guarantee that even if you've got a voice in the Constitution, even if you're taking advice from Aboriginal communities that's well-sourced, there's no guarantee it's going to be listened to.
2: I'm not sure about that, Norman. I think that if the voice was in place. I genuinely believe that the Stronger Futures legislation on alcohol wouldn't have been lifted. That is my firm belief, given the data that was showing about the reduction in alcohol-related harm, preventable harm, of what it was before the tap was turned on. I genuinely believe that they wouldn't have lifted it. The other, I think, important point here around The importance of Aboriginal community controlled services, the Aboriginal community controlled health services gave our people a voice on health matters at a local level and they also spoke up against inappropriate and discriminatory services. So I think collectively where you see this network of Aboriginal community controlled health services across the country that can then feed into a national peak body, complementary to the voice at a national level.
1: What you're saying is the structure is there to enact and move forward.
2: Exactly. And I think that it will make a difference. I think that we can't lose sight of its primary goal, this First Nations voice to parliament. It is a practical, positive difference to the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and I genuinely also believe that it will make Australia a fairer and more inclusive nation.
1: And I suspect that most people listening know that there is such a thing as community-controlled health organisations in Aboriginal communities, but they probably wouldn't have a clue exactly how they work. Do you want to just give us a a two-minute description of how they work?
2: Well, if you look at Congress, we're an Aboriginal community-controlled community controlled primary health care service, we began in 1973 to be the voice on the rights of Aboriginal people in Central Australia. It wasn't until 1975 that the medical service started with a doctor, an Aboriginal health worker, a medical receptionist and a, and a transport service, to now where we are a comprehensive primary health care service to 17,000 of the 18,000 Aboriginal people living in Central Australia. It covers a a multidisciplinary primary clinical care, access to key medicines, key evidence based social and preventative programs such as early childhood, maternal and child health, chronic disease, family support, and therapeutic interventions like alcohol and other drug treatment
1: programs. In some ways, it's the way you wish non Indigenous general practice to be multidisciplinary, team based care. Fiona, Something I've broadcast on many times over the years, based on Michael Marmot's work, on expatriate Australian working in London, is this notion of locus of control, where he just very briefly tried to describe in his situation in the British civil service, why there was a health gap and life expectancy gap in the British civil service. And when you removed all the factors that make a difference, cholesterol, access to health services, education level, there was still a gap. And one of the significant things that actually reduced that gap or explained it was loss of locus of control, that people in the system where they lost control of their lives created chronic stress, premature aging and so on. To what extent do you believe the voice is a mechanism for returning locus of control, building on what Donna has just talked about?
3: Oh, well, I'm just going to say that I strongly support what Donna's just said, but there's just been a recent report in the MJA earlier this year, which showed that in the Launceston AMS, the outcomes for chronic disease were far better than the GP services in Northern Tasmania. So you're right. I mean, everyone would like the kind of wraparound services that many of the AMSs provide. And people will actually, Aboriginal people trust them so much, they'll go across a whole city in Brisbane, for example, to go to the Aboriginal Medical Service, even though they might have a GP close by. So there's two aspects, I think, about that locus of control. That is that Aboriginal people who are in control of their own services, and if they were properly funded, their self-esteem rises. So we've got a lot of data now, both from Canada and from Australia, to say that when there is Aboriginal control of services, the whole of the community's self-esteem rises. Things like suicide rates in adolescents fall. But the point I really want to make about the control is how effective these services are because people trust them. And the best example of that, which people don't know enough about, is how the Aboriginal network of health and other services worked across Australia to prevent the pandemic having such a devastating effect on Aboriginal people, as it did on other First Nations people everywhere else. In fact, the Aboriginal population in Australia, amazingly, had six times fewer cases than we did, a six-fold reversal of the gap And they did it by engaging that network that Donna talked about, where the Aboriginal Medical Service and the other services run by Aboriginal people, I mean, they got all of the homeless elders off the streets. They closed communities, but they had to provide health services. They had to provide food. They had to provide medicines. It's an extraordinary success story. It went a bit off at the end when Morrison got the vaccine roll up wrong and they opened the communities too quickly. So when the voice was taken from them, they had a, a slight increase in problems. And there are these networks across Australia, not just in health, legal services, in birthing. We've just got the most wonderful data on Aboriginal birthing and what that's doing across Australia. So the networks are ready to go. All they need is to have is that voice. It's not going to be a lead Canberra voice. You'll be able to go right down a community and get people to say, this is what will work with us.
1: Donna, the No campaign I don't know what they would argue, but I suspect the No campaign would say, well, by proposing the voice and creating this divisiveness in the community, you're actually going to make Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worse. What's your argument for that?
2: Absolutely disagree. Because what we've seen with a network of Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, without that, we would have a worse health status. So I don't agree that it's going to be divisive. In fact, I think what it will do is bring people together. Fiona was talking earlier on about the wastage of, of money that's gone to ill-informed, non-evidence-based, non-Aboriginal services. That won't happen and should not happen with a national voice if governments are going to listen to that advice. I don't see why they won't.
3: They took notice during COVID, so there is a model for going with it
2: in the Northern Territory, we were the ones, combined Aboriginal organisations in Alice Springs, very early called for closing of the borders. So it sounded Mm. like we were just this fringe, radical group that didn't know what we were talking about, which then became part of the norm. When we're looking at the social determinants of health, Aboriginal medical services were talking about that back in the 70s. And, Norman, you were raising the control factor and Michael Marmot's work, and particularly around the social and economic issues, such as poverty, lack of access to quality education, inequality, unemployment, poor housing. All of these have a powerful influence on health. And that's where the voice is going to have a significant contribution
1: to play. Thank you very much to you both. That's uh, been illuminating. Thank Thank you, Norman. Norman. Fiona Stanley is an Aboriginal health researcher and founding director of the Telethon Institute for Child Health Research in Western Australia. And Donna Archie is chief executive officer of the Central Australian Aboriginal Congress. And you're with The Health Report.
0: Over the past two decades, deaths from cardiovascular disease among people with diabetes have gone down, which is great news. But the decline is revealing other trends. Which are important to understand when you consider that one in 20 Australians have type one or two diabetes, and that number is increasing. So, what are the causes of death that are becoming more obvious as cardiovascular disease is declining? One person who has been crunching the numbers on this is Jonathan Shaw from the Baker Institute. Welcome, Jonathan. Good afternoon. It's not really nice to be talking about causes of death, but it is important for us to understand for healthcare planning and for prevention, what are the main causes that you found?
4: Yes, this really is something that we have to keep a watch on, that we have to understand, that we have to be able to look at in order to track really what the serious complications of a condition like diabetes are. And, you know, we've focused for decades on the cardiovascular consequences. And that by that we mean heart attacks, strokes, um, more recently becoming more prominent, in that is heart failure. Um, and we've focused a lot on those. And um, that really has been paying off. Um, there has been a substantial decline that we have seen here in Australia, also reported in the UK and the United States and other countries, in the proportion of deaths due to cardiovascular disease. It's still a really important cause of death. Uh, We shouldn't underestimate it. Um, But there has been some really good progress there. And as we've seen that come down, we've seen other things go up. Um, This is when we look at all deaths as a whole. So, of course, if if one cause comes down as a proportion, something else has to go up. Um, And it looks bigger
0: than it was before. Yeah.
4: Absolutely. Um, And the the, the two things that we've really seen uh, across different countries taking off um, is cancer um, and particularly um, dementia. Um, These are both becoming major sources of uh, ill health and ultimately death.
0: So cancer and dementia, dementia especially, is really a disease of ageing or it's sort of, you know, a higher risk factor in older people is the fact that we've removed cardiovascular disease risk just allowing people to live longer and to the developing dementia, or is diabetes a driving factor behind it as well?
4: Tegan, I think, you know, you, you're partially right there um, with the, uh, the increasing longevity simply leading to um, a, a higher profile for causes of death that are more prominent in the very elderly. And in some senses... Um, whilst, of course, for any individual, uh, dementia can be extremely challenging, and certainly for their families and very expensive for the community. In some senses, it's kind of an indication of um, the benefits of uh, treatment of other conditions and allowing people to survive to uh, greater ages. But But um, that really isn't all of the story. We have known now for 10 or 20 years that diabetes directly increases the risk of uh, different types of dementia, particularly those types of dementia classified as vascular dementia that are related to vascular disease, to blood vessel disease. Uh, And in the data that we most recently analyzed and published, we saw that even when we controlled for the age of people, we were still seeing a substantial rise in the proportion of deaths that were due to dementia. So, for example, among people who were in their 70s, and there was a, you know, a mean age of about 75 um, at the beginning in 2002 and almost identical at the end of our observation period in 2019, the proportion of people dying from dementia um, increased from about 1% to about 4%. So mm-hmm. that's, once we're controlling for the effects of age. And so there's clearly something else going on there um, that we need to be aware of.
0: Part of the reason behind this drop in cardiovascular disease is because we've gotten so much better at controlling things like people's blood glucose levels, their cholesterol, their uh, blood pressure. Your study, the the data came from 2002 to 2019, which really means it hasn't captured this new generation of Diabetes drugs, the GLP 1 agonists, what do you think, that, what sort of effect do you think they're going to have on this landscape? I, I,
4: I hope that this will continue the the downward trajectory of uh, many types of cardiovascular disease, and so we've got the, the, these newer drugs. You referred to the uh, GLP one receptor agonists, perhaps even more potent uh, across a, a range of cardiovascular conditions, as well as kidney disease. Are uh, the the, the so called SGLT two inhibitors? This is uh, a, a, a class of tablets that we started to use about ten years ago. So. We may have seen some impact of those in our figures, um, but it's really only the last three or four years when we've really understood the the major benefits of these drugs on those particular outcomes and started to see numbers of people in the community uh, uh, rapidly increasing who are being treated with them. So I would expect that in the next to the next time we do this, when we can start to look at what's happening in the 2020s, that we'll start to see further benefits from those drugs.
0: We'll be getting you back then. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you. Professor Jonathan Shaw is Deputy Director, Clinical and Population Health at Melbourne's Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. And Norman, before we say goodbye to our friends today, we should say, um, we should look in a bit of the news that's been happening. And one of the things that uh, we've talked about with a lot of audience questions over the past is shingles vaccines, and there are some changes afoot there.
1: Yeah, and people can refer back to an interview we did with Professor Tony Cunningham back in August of last year, where we talked about this. there have been two shingles vaccines, one that was available for people over 70, called Zostavax, and a new one that was around, which was very expensive, about $600 for two doses, which was much more effective, 90% effective, and the effect didn't deteriorate in the same way as it did with Zostefax, so it was pretty well maintained for maybe seven or even ten years, and yet people weren't getting access to it. Not quite sure what's happened. I think the cost-benefit analysis has worked in the favour of the government approving this. Plus, maybe they've done a good deal on the price. But this is now available much more widely. So from the 1st of November, this uh, more effective vaccine is going to be available for anybody over the age of 65, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people over the age of 50, and anybody over the age of 18 who is immunocompromised. So in other words, cancer treatment bone marrow transplants, things like that. So that's good news. Um, you don't want to get shingles unless you... Oh, you really don't want to get it? It sounds No, 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 awful. Unless less about it. You don't want to get it. Painful, can threaten your eyesight, can even threaten your life if you're really seriously immunocompromised.
0: And but there are other benefits from being vaccinated against shingles.
1: Well, you're alluding to your conversation with Jonathan there about Dementia. Um, there is tantalising evidence growing that people who are immunised against shing- shingles, and this is with the old vaccine, this was a study done in Wales, where on a certain date, several years ago, they introduced uh, Zostavax, the old va- shingles vaccine for people aged 70 and older. And so on one day of the year, there, there you could get shingles vaccine. So there was no difference between the two populations apart from that date. And the Population that had shingles vaccine had a 17% lower risk of developing dementia. And this is, there's tantalizing evidence that that's happening in other places. You won't see that on the product leaflet because it's not been proven and it's not approved, but it's a tantalizing extra benefit if you have your shingles immunization.
0: It's not great for the people in Wales who missed out by that one day, but it is useful when health uh, districts do that because it makes it very nice to measure.
1: Yep. Natural Experiment in Time. So this is um, important. And as I say, if you go back in the health report, we're always ahead, (laughs) sometimes years ahead of the evidence. You can go back and listen to that Tony Cunningham interview where he talks about the evidence for this new shingles. Well, it's not new anymore, but this other shingles vaccine.
0: And as I said, it was something that we got a lot of questions about from our audience. And if you do have questions, you can always email us healthreport at abc.net.au. And another uh, public health intervention that we've been seeing, not in Australia, but in the UK, the UK Prime Minister's announced to ban the sale of tobacco products to young generations in England. They're sort of phasing it out progressively over the coming years.
1: This follows also a uh, similar policy in New Zealand. You might be surprised to hear me say I'm not so confident about this. Why? I think banning a drug can create an illicit market. And I think we've got to continue on what we're doing, banning advertising, using really quite aggressive pricing policies and continue to educate people and and really banning the sale of vaping products with nicotine. Those are the sorts of things. But banning drugs, I'm not so sure.
0: I have seen data from the CDC in the US saying that nine out of 10 adults who smoke actually try smoking first before they turn 18.
1: That's right. So if you're not smoking by the age of 18 or 19, you're unlikely ever to. So that's why vaping is important. And it's also pricing because when you're under 18, you're very price sensitive.
0: One to watch. Uh, but that is all we've got time for on The Health Report today.
1: Yep. We'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.